You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. It's me, your old pal, Phantom Troublemaker, fresh back into the Phantom Zone from a very fun-filled Days of the Dead horror convention. Uh, it is Sunday, February the 9th, and me and the missus spent the night in downtown Atlanta last night at the Sheraton, hanging out with hordes of ghoulish folk, uh, doing our best to have fun. And I, I don't want to get into the whole Days of the Dead thing, because that could be a whole other podcast. Uh, it'll certainly be a, a an article on NeedlessThingsSite.com at some point this week. But it's something where you kind of have to make your own fun. Uh, and we did. Thanks to all our pals being down there, we got to hang out with a bunch of really cool people, uh, drink a lot, and have a blast. And I managed to not be hungover this morning. And that's mainly because I woke up at about 3.30. Well, no, I was still up. Uh, I, I was maybe a little dazed, but I, I was up and uh, just purged. Had a good old-fashioned purge right into the Sheraton Hotel toilet. Which, let me just say, the Sheraton bathroom in the South Tower, anyway, is fantastic. The showerhead is super tall. I didn't have to duck down at all. The bathroom is very well made. The counter kind of cuts away to leave room in front of the toilet and the shower. And it's like, it's very, a very wise use of limited space. I was very impressed with uh, that bathroom. And, and I say that because of the amount of time I spent in there uh, kneeling and purging. But anyway, we had a great time. I got to meet Ron Simmons. I got to meet Jason Muse. Uh, I didn't do interviews at all because it was just the atmosphere of the place. I, I honestly wasn't in a real interviewee sort of frame of mind. I was kind of just there to have fun because now with, with what I do here and on the site, I, I do work to a certain extent. When I go to things, and this one is just for me and, and Mrs. Troublemaker to have fun and drink and hang out with our pals, which we did and, and had a great time doing that. Uh, happy birthday to Red Bear. Uh, congratulations on being a year older than me. Uh, not really. He's only three months older than me, but uh, I'll go ahead and throw that year in there for right now. Uh, today on the podcast, I have another barn burner so to speak, uh, an appropriate term to use because once again we're dipping into the world of wrestling and yet so much more. I first met Stephen Platinum a few years ago and it, it's an interesting way and, and I forgot to bring it up during the interview and, and hopefully uh, Steve you're listening to this and this will spark a little bit of a memory but PCW used to run shows at the Masquerade which is a music club here in Atlanta, it used to be 
it's it's been very punk rock it's been very industrial it's been a little bit of everything and and it's also been very wrestling uh because they've hosted wrestling shows there from time to time and platinum championship wrestling used to host wrestling shows there one night a month and it was a wednesday night so i was able to go to most of them uh because my just the way it being monthly and my work schedule and everything else it just worked out that i was off and able to go and after the first or second show i knew that i loved it and I wanted to talk to just some of the, some of the boys. And I walked back towards the back. You know what? This must have been the first show because for me to have not known, it had to have been. So I walked back to the back and there's this guy in a green track jacket standing kind of on the other side of the barrier. And I used to work at the masquerade. So the little barrier between, uh, the walk to the bathroom place and backstage doesn't mean quite as much to me because I've been back there. I know that it's basically just a dirty shithole uh, where people that are more famous than you get to stand and wait for things. Uh, so anyway, he's standing back there and, and I see the guy in the green track jacket and I just walk over and I was like, man, uh, this show is great. I'm having such a great time here. And just started talking to the guy, and I, honestly, I don't remember what we talked about exactly, but he was super nice, uh, just very willing to, to talk about what was going on, and then some music started playing, and he was like, oh shit, I gotta go, that's my music, and I was like, huh? And he walks out, and I didn't even realize he was gonna be part of the show i thought maybe he was a, a manager or, or something else he walks out and, and is steven platinum and is the guy that's running the whole show and i went back out to my buddies and i was like i was just back there fucking talking to the guy that runs the show and that was the first time i met him and then after that i got my picture with him because he was a cool guy and we ended up you know doing the facebook thing and, and having conversations but it was usually about anything but wrestling. Uh, we talked about horror movies. We talked about his trip to visit Full Moon Studios, the actual studio, uh, which was very exciting to me. And I had to ask him about it uh, during this episode, and I did, and you'll get to hear about that. Uh, but just talk about a lot of pop culture, and, and the guy is just fascinating. He, he knows a good bit about a lot of different things. Uh, so every once in a while, maybe some wrestling would come up, but, but really we kind of just got to be pals talking about other stuff. And, uh, it, it's, it's been very cool knowing him and getting his insights on lots of different things. And at the same time, uh, and we talk about this in the episode too, so I'm not going to go over it too much here, but he gave me my first job in wrestling. Uh, and, and obviously you guys know I don't wrestle. I'm, I, I am too much of a sissy to walk around in pain all the time. I'm, I'm not coordinated. Uh, my brain doesn't work fast enough to, do a wrestling match like I still don't and even even having worked shows and watched that stuff up close and heard guys talk about matches beforehand not you know not that that happens uh I don't understand how they do it man I really don't I don't I don't know how in the heat of the moment they figure out what they're doing it's insane uh and and once again I will I will drop that age-old nugget of anybody who says wrestling is fake is a moron uh, you know, there, there's a certain element of planning to it and the outcomes may be predetermined, but there is nothing fake about wrestling at all. Uh, it, it is a unique sport. 
Uh, but anyway, I'm not here to, to talk about that. I'm here to talk about Stephen Platinum and, and how excited I was to be able to actually sit down and have this, this long, interesting conversation with the dude. Because we've had, you know, little exchanges back and forth over messenger or text or whatever the case may be. Uh, but never had just, just a, a sit down dude talk. And that's what we had. And it, it was very enjoyable. Uh, it could have gone on much longer than it did. Before I get into the interview proper, I'll say one more thing here. Uh, there are not a lot of people that I take criticism of any kind from very well. As you guys might know from reading my stuff or from listening to the podcast or if you know me personally, I've got a bit of an ego. And it's not necessarily a I'm the best in the world ego, but it's a I'm pretty damn good ego. And... If I'm going to listen to you criticize me in any way, I've got to have substantial evidence that you are as good as or better than me. I don't do really well with people that I view as inferior uh, giving me any kind of criticism or advice or anything like that. And I think that's probably a fairly common human uh, affection, state of being, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but the problem is, I, you know, I, I need to, I, I've always had issues with that kind of thing. And Stephen Platinum is one of about three people on this planet that I would accept any criticism in any form from. I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him and his mind and what he does. Uh, and it's not just because he ran PCW, it's because he's proven to me that he's quick and he's sharp and he knows what the fuck he's talking about. When he opens his mouth, it's because he has something to say that you need to listen to. Uh, speaking of which, listen to this. Uh, you can find the Needless Things podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher. Uh, you can download it, listen to it anytime you want. You can stream it however you prefer to take in your podcasts. Me, I listen to them streaming in the car on Stitcher. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoy them there because I've got long car rides, my friends. special treat tonight and every night seems to be a special treat because all of these folks that I've been talking to are are they're on the list uh, every one of them is has been special and a big deal and tonight we've got none other than the brain behind Platinum Championship Wrestling uh, one of the finest wrestling minds I've ever had the pleasure of meeting and that would be Mr. Stephen Platinum how are you doing tonight sir I'm doing fantastic Phantom Troublemaker, how are you? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm very excited because I, I have made a pledge to myself for 2014 that I am going to get my name out, that I'm going to pursue 
all of the the interviews and whatever else uh, that I that I want to get done. I'm going to make it all happen, and and uh, you know it, maybe it won't all happen, but I'm I'm going to put every bit of effort I've got into it. You know, it's it's funny that you bring that up. I, I'm turning 42 on February 9th, and um, little little geeky thing is I'm obsessed with making sure my 42nd year is a big deal because there's this there's this Japanese myth. Um, of like for samurai for age 42 is considered your ideal year where you haven't physically declined yet and you're as smart as you're going to be um, wow. where they where those things sort of cross and and there's a sort of legendary thing um, you can read about it in lone wolf and cub actually okay it's called it's called incense for the living where they took like the best samurai and they would they would go through a whole funeral they'd stick them in a barrel and bury them in the ground and then this group of like elite soldiers would dig them back up and they would be reborn into the shoguns they call it the yama metsuke so basically the guys that were spies for the shogun uh that would that were really good at traversing mountains but they were considered at their peak at 42 so once you turn 42 that's when they would do this whole thing so i've gotten sort of obsessed with this notion of getting all this stuff in um my 42nd year that's so. very interesting because I, I are you familiar with the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy absolutely yes. so you know that 42 is also the answer to life the universe and everything mm. Yes, indeed. I um, wonder if that's where he picked that up from the Japanese mythology or if it just is a one of those random happenstances, you know? I wonder. I wonder if it's like that. What was the big number for that silly Jim Carrey? Oh, 23, wasn't it? Oh, like, yeah. So all yeah. these things converge on the number 23. Yeah. That, well, and, and it's interesting because 42 is one of those numbers that, that kind of pops up time and time again. But, uh, you know, there there's a whole discussion to be had about uh, numerology and randomness and all that kind of thing. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about that kind of stuff. We're here to talk about wrestling. And we're here to talk about, I want to start with your trip to the Full Moon Studios, because that came up in a conversation we had a couple of years ago, and I, you know it was one of those brief online things where it's kind of like, well, here's a sentence, here's a couple more sentences, oh, my kid's screaming, gotta go. And, right. Uh, so uh, how, how, did, how did you end up visiting Full Moon Studios? I loved... I just loved movies in general, and that's my friends and I did three things basically socially in high school. And you're talking about like the mid to late eighties. Okay, that's when I was in high school. So we would either hang out at my friend Scott's house because he had the cool house and the cool parents that would just stay upstairs. And so he had a basketball court and a pool and all that kind of stuff. Oh, nice. And and he also had the Playboy Channel, which was a big huge deal for us. <laughs> yeah. And, so we would either hang out with him, uh, that was kind of like the main thing that we did, or, and we rented a lot of movies, cause we had a lot of video stores nearby, and, we, I have a love, and I've always had a love of sort of like kitschy, like sort of off the beaten path stuff. And growing up in Hawaii, you get you have contact with just a lot of different things, like Japanese movies and all that kind of stuff. And um, Full Moon Pictures, all those movies like the Puppet Master series um, and Demonic Toys and all of that kind of stuff. And they yeah. picked up the Trancers series later on, and. 
we just loved, I just loved full moon movies. And I also loved getting stuff in the mail. I think that's one of those things that's been lost on the modern world where you can just, you know, you click on Amazon and you get stuff to your house in two or three days. You used to have to pay your dues like this four to six week stuff. Yeah. It used to be such a special thing because that was when I was, uh, I'm, I'm only five years younger than you are. So we're pretty much same generation. And when I was a kid, you'd have Star Wars and G.I. Joe mail away figures. Yes. And it was the same principle where you mailed them away. And when you're a kid, it seemed like a year later, your Dagobah, you know, backpack and gas masks showed up in the mail or whatever. You had to wait. You're right. There was no one click. I have it now. I was, I was a big, you know, save your proofs of purchase from cereal too. So I have like a, like I have a, um, like booberry shirt that oh. took like three proofs of purchase and like four ninety five. Like I, I used to collect that stuff. I always like having stuff in the mail. Yeah. Like that's a, that's a thing that I've retained to this day. And with full moon, it was like, oh, you could be a member. They would full moon was the, the shameless. I mean, this was the kind of before the internet era, and they were just shameless. They were just like, join the full moon fan club. Like they're they're everything before the movie itself, which would usually only be an hour and fifteen minutes. Yeah, but it would just be packed full of previews for every single thing, and then they would sell every soundtrack and all of that. But they had full moon fan club mm-hmm. where part of the appeal was you could visit our studios and i i was living in hawaii at the time <clears throat> but eventually i went to school i would i would go to the mainland for different things like wrestling stuff and whatnot and i said i have a full moon membership i'm gonna go visit the studios and i was one of the last people who got to do that right before they got into huge trouble with paramount which was kind of their parent corporation oh wow um, did you oh did you ever hear about that no no so the so so the band brothers like charles band and stuff like that who, right by the way i saw that they were they were the main forces behind birdemic and how excited was I when I watched that terrible movie? But I was watching it, man, and I was watching it and listening to the soundtrack, and the yeah. soundtrack was pretty good. Like the band, Charles Band was a composer, mm-hmm. and like all those Full Moon movies have like kind of a similar sound, mm-hmm. like it's like this right. like got carnival influenced, like dreamy stuff. And they had that in Birdemic, that terrible movie, and I went. Oh my gosh, I gotta wait for the credits. And sure enough, Charles Band was like one of the producers and he did the music. Um, anyway, so I was, I was all excited about going to the Full Moon Studios. Oh, so the trouble that they got into. Right, right. I'll get into that really quick. So Paramount would give them money to make a movie. So like the, um, I'm trying to think of specifically the, what was it called? The Bloodstone series? Which oh, was the like- subspecies. Right? right. So they gave them money f- to make one movie and they, they would go to another country like Romania where mm-hmm. they didn't have strict stuntman laws. So they could just get these guys on the cheap to do all these crazy things and they would make two or three movies, but just claim one for parents. <laughs> And then try to make their money on these sort of straight-to-video hustles on the side, thinking Paramount would never find out. Right, so right. Did with a bunch of series. That's why Full Moon would always just spit these things out, because they would give them the money to finance one movie. And, I mean, you know, the guy made Ed Wood look like the guy who did Cutthroat Island. And he would just, like, save a buck any way he could, and they would squeeze out two or three movies and try to keep the revenue from the other two. That's beautiful. Wow. And, well, in Full Moon, you mentioned this. 
promotion at the beginning, but Full Moon were the first ones to do special features because even though they were VHS tapes, they would put little featurettes about the movies and the making of after the movie. Something too, because they had like a little, like a little montage of like the hand flying at you and all this stuff from their different movies and it would go like, and they'd have behind the scenes stuff. In fact, I collect that stuff. You can get like all the full moon trailers on one DVD. I found if I, and so I have that and you could get like the music of full moon where they would have, um, like video, like shots from the movies, um, put in with the music. And so I collect all that stuff. And, but I going to the full moon studios was one of the most underwhelming experiences of my life. I had built it up as this like, it's going to be incredible. It was almost literally just a closet. It was just like a small area where they had some stuff in storage because they would employees would steal stuff and and they would have to sell stuff off just to make ends meet. So there oh, wasn't wow. to see. There really wasn't. I mean, it was literally the guys like, "Oh my gosh, somebody's actually here to take this tour." And the tour was like, "Well, here it is." And he literally just stretched his arms out in, in the room. It was kind of like the um what you would see in um Face Off. You know how they have like that big area where they build stuff? Oh yeah, yeah. Just take that's what it looked like except just truncate it to a, a room probably about as big as your bedroom. It's rough when you can say it's like that sci-fi television show but not as nice. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny cuz sci-fi in the early days kind of lived on a lot of full moon movies and yeah. now they're this big budget thing and uh it's amazing it's amazing how things kind of turn around and it was funny seeing that charles band was still still doing the do making terrible terrible movies that i love like birdemic well i think to have that passion because i mean obviously those guys went at least a couple of decades just cranking out those you know those movies straight to vhs because i mean maybe puppet master and subspecies like the initial ones hit theaters but after that you know, the five or six sequels that all of their franchises had were all like straight to VHS stuff. And, and for the record, I should say my favorite full moon movie is Puppet Master 3. I think it's by far and away the best thing that they've ever done. That's the one where the, the puppets kind of turn face. Yeah. And the story's in retrospect and it's them killing Nazis and it's absolutely fantastic. I love the third one. It's so gratuitous. And then all of the, um, I love all of the, the film clips that they use, which are obviously they got from some other movie that was done decades before all the seat mm-hmm. shots and things like that, all the stock footage that they have is so bizarre because of course their budget is nothing. So they don't have any extras. It's supposed to be this like full city that the Nazis have taken over and there's like the cars will drive on the street. And there won't be another car in the whole shot. Um, but then all of a sudden they'll have a street scene in the daytime and it'll be packed because it's you know, some kind of stock footage. Well, see, and I love that kind of stuff mm-hmm. because to me, it's fascinating to watch people working on a budget because there's so much more creativity involved. That's, I mean, that's why I lo- have loved Doctor Who forever. Like Absolutely. the old Doctor Who with, you know, spray painted dinner plates flying through the air. Did you ever see a, is a documentary, is a Portapopolis or something like that? About the director, he did like um, um, witches of Breastwick and all that. 
He did a lot of like the um like Cinemax stuff. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it. He was this oh I can't I feel so bad I don't know his I don't remember his name. But he was brilliant and he had at one point bought um from Universal. They just had like all this like cutting room floor stuff from their big budget movies. But they he talked them into selling it to him for like a hundred grand for all this footage and he was an expert at doing these cheap movies where he would splice and so they'd have like a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie in this like huge epic car chase scene that they just decided not to use and he would find a way to splice in footage that he shot with the car chase so you would literally think that they had done this big car chase in his crappy little movie wow that's kind of genius joe the like here's the here's the van damme movie here's his stuff and i mean he was so good at editing and camera cuts and matching the lighting that you never knew and and so he would have these like epic like plane like combat things with planes and all this stuff in his terrible cinemax movies um, That's but it, outstanding. Documentary because he's sort of the last of a dying breed. That doesn't that kind of movie making just doesn't exist anymore. Where you have like he was saying like the tragedy was there was no more B B movies. Right. Um, that it's it's either like just the cut rate stuff that you'll see on like Netflix, like these mm. horror movies that you just never heard of that are just so badly done, or you have big blockbuster movies you don't have the movie that's made for like two hundred thousand and was shot over two weeks well Um, and you can't go to see you can't go to see anything that's not a blockbuster in the theater anymore mm -hmm. like that it used to be an experience going to see some like cheesy movie in the theater that maybe didn't have that much of a budget but it was out because it was out you know every movie didn't used to be a blockbuster Yes, I was, I was thinking about movies that I used to go see at the Kaneohe Dollar Twin. So it was a buck and you could see two movies. And not that they quite fit in this category, but like, I just remember getting, like, like I got to see like House Party and Labyrinth and a double feature for a dollar. And I'm thinking nowadays, I don't know if a movie like Labyrinth would get made. Or a movie like House Party, for that matter, where it was like, I don't think those, I think those would be straight to video movies and they would be done much, much, much more cheaply. And that's a shame. That's a real shame that there isn't experimental movies now. Like you said, they get relegated to basically not being on the um, radar at all. Um, They just go straight to Netflix or whatever. But I think we're at an interesting point where... You know, over the last few years, if something was straight to DVD or straight to Netflix or whatever, it was kind of disregarded. But now, you know, Netflix is starting to become a thing. If you have a series on Netflix, that's that's a thing now. And it's we're making this transition to where, you know, the studios and the movie theaters are getting kind of scared because the, the line between the theatrical experience and the home experience is really starting to blur. I'm looking forward to, I mean, I gotta say, like, I don't, I don't keep up with almost any television shows that run week by week. Um, I find the experience really frustrating because I'm spoiled. So, 
so like Sons of Anarchy is a show that I would keep up with, but I'm just not, I'm much more, ex- I'm excited about like House of Cards is going to, you know, February 14th, I know the day, and then right. the whole second season's going to be there. Um, now I'm like ultra super spoiled, and so I've, I catch up with stuff retrospectively, like I just, watched the entire Dexter series and I'm, you know. Are you kidding? I just finished it. Yeah, I just finished it a little. I I, I couldn't I would get DVDs from the library. The library mm. system here is unbelievable. There's like 14 libraries within like 10 miles of me and oh, you can wow. get stuff mailed to your house and all that kind of stuff. But for the DVDs I actually liked hunting for them and like piecing them together. So I just watched Dexter um, I had to finish it up on Netflix because I couldn't get the last season in the library. And I just finished up The Wire, which is another show that I'm like way behind on. But then now I've seen it all and I got to see it all at once, Yeah, which was fantastic. Oh, so great. So my next thing is Game of Thrones um, because like if somebody, somebody gave me their HBO Go password. <laughs> so, <laughs> and gonna... HBO doesn't care. Right. They have no problem with that. They've stated, well, we, you know, we're not too worried about it. That's, um, that's be a little of the fun for me, actually. <laughs> uh, so, Dexter, I've, I've got to ask you, since we both just finished watching this thing, I where I am with Dexter is I thoroughly enjoyed it up through probably about halfway through the last episode of the season where Colin Hanks was the villain. Okay. Everything after that, there were still very good points, but it was just this decline of, oh, really? Oh, no. Oh, this is getting worse. And then the very, very end, and I'm going to, spoiler alert, if you guys haven't watched Dexter, you just go ahead and skip ahead a couple of minutes on this thing. I was terribly, you've you've completed it, right? (laughs) Yes, Lumberjack. I can't get it. What? I mean, really? I, I have this character, um... You know Knife, the guy who does the PCW yeah. posters. Yeah, yeah. He posted something that he found all these old video game systems that he had, so he was selling them off. Mm-hmm. And so he put a thing where he was selling off a Sega Genesis and 25 games. So as a joke, I went on that thread and I just put, you got you got that Echo the Dolphin, son? Or something <laughs> like that. Right. Uh, because I think one of the funniest things I think going on on the internet right now is uh, thug cooking. Where the guy has the recipe. Oh but, yeah, yeah. Oh, thug style. He's like, you mince the shit out of the garlic and that kind of stuff. I just and think, he's good though. He's good. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just put, you got that Echo the Dolphin son? And he said no. So I called up every mutual friend that we had <laughs> and left these long diatribe voicemails in the voice of this like thug that loved Echo the Dolphin. <laughs> so I would just go like, you tell Knife, he need to get that Echo the Dolphin. You can't have Sega Genesis without Echo. And I would just go off about it. And so I called Dana Swanson, um, thinking she would be at work. She works at, um, like Adult Swim and Cartoon Network. Right. She and does I thought, a tsunami. She's at work. She won't pick that up. Right. But she picked it up. And so I'm just started going off on her. And I'm like, you need to talk to your boy knife. And so she thought it was serious for about 20 seconds. Like, oh God, Steve's really mad about something like he always is. But, and then when she realized, when I started saying stuff like, he got altered beast, altered beast is for punks, Dana. And, uh, and then, uh, I started going off about Sega Genesis and she was like, that's the funniest thing I've heard in a long time. 
and I'm like, you know, I kind of like that character, so I made up a thing. I'm calling it uh, Keeping It Geek, Keeping It G, and in parentheses, E-E-K, and I'll just randomly rant about stuff, and I ranted about the last show of Dexter, and... Um, and so I'm started to put them all on SoundCloud. Oh, that's <laughs> beautiful. Dana thinks it might actually be a thing. She's like, maybe, I don't know. I'm like, oh yeah, would Adult Swim buy them and just play them between the cartoons? Sure. <laughs> like rants. So I did a rant about Dungeons and Dragons, about how nobody really follows the rules. Oh uh, yeah, we just talked about that on a recent episode. How really? no, nobody, nobody starts with a character they, they legitimately just rolled up. That doesn't happen. Right, and my thing is nobody uses the combat rules. It's like you go, then I go, then yeah. you, then I go, and nobody uses casting components and all. But it's, but it's, it's this guy, this like keeping it G guy who just rants about it for like seven or eight minutes. So it's beautiful. Dexter thing. It's actually him defending uh, Dexter because I thought that would be even funnier because nobody defends the last Dexter. <laughs> so I thought it'd be funny if he did. And he so he talks about how um, Deb had to die because of the moral imperative. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's a Greek tragedy, and Deb shot Laguardia, man, and that violated all of her moral compunctions, and it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Oh, that's um, awesome, Dexter. Um, again, I don't, I, and it's my philosophy about wrestling too. You got him and an improv or anything else. You got to make a strong choice. And I think it's like Dexter had to die or Dexter had to defy all odds and live the life that he set up for himself. Mm -hmm. It made no sense for him to disappear and pop up somewhere else by his. I mean, he's a killer who kills killers. So he either needs to die or he needs to, or he needs to try to end the cycle with his own son. I just right. don't understand living on his own as a lumberjack. It was just completely unsatisfying. Well, that's the thing is is the entire series, he had a purpose at all times. Now, that purpose changed over the course of the series, but then at the very end, we see him essentially purposeless. And, yeah. And it's just, uh, it, it didn't work for me at all. I thought for sure it would come down to a confrontation between Deborah and Dexter where she would have to make the choice and he would have to let her make that choice. Um, you know, with, with, uh, when LaGuerta found him in, uh, or I'm sorry, when he lured LaGuerta to the, the container right. and Deborah showed up, that's the end I had visualized for the series. Yes. But not with Deborah being compliant with what he'd been doing. That blew my mind. And and as a, as a, as a superficial male, I have to say the fact that I never got to see Deb completely naked was so disappointing. I'll agree with that. <laughs> I, I I I can't explain. It's it's the same weird disappointment I feel that we've never got to see Stephanie McMahon mostly naked, and I just I just I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I have to give her a lot of credit though for not ever doing that because the opportunity was certainly there a lot. True. And, uh, you know, the fact that she didn't is impressive because there were certainly times where I'm sure she could have used, uh, you know, uh, a, a little extra diva push. Cause I think she's a very different person now than she was when she first appeared on screen. Yes. Um, I, well, obviously she would be, but I, I think there were times where that is something that could have happened and and it never did. I, that's impressive. But at the same time, I'd like to see it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, speaking of wrestling, since mm -hmm. you you opened up that Pandora's box, oh, um, 
No, we're not going to talk about Pandora's box. <laughs> um, so you grew up in Hawaii, which I did not know. Is that I did. Right? I grew up in Hawaii. I was I was born in Alexandria, Virginia, and lived in Japan and a bunch of other stuff because I was I was a military brat. My dad is a Marine. Um, but he retired from the Marines soon after I was born. But um, he and my mom decided that Hawaii was the place that they most liked and uh, out of all the places they had been stationed. So we, I grew up in Hawaii from – I lived there when I was a really little kid and then we moved back when I was about in third grade and I stayed there all the way through grad school. And um, so, yeah, I grew up in Hawaii. What was your first – I love wrestling memory. Mm-hmm. What What was your first one that was just like, like when you think back, like whoa, that's that's a that's big one. Easy. That that's so easy. I had I had two friends that were a lot older. I always had friends that were much older than I was because I was I was sort of a smart, cagey kid, and so I hung out with these two friends, Donovan and Rabender, which is a name I've never heard before or since. Rabender. Wow. And we would hang out at Donovan's house all summer. So we would we would be there in the garage playing Dungeons and Dragons, waiting for the shave ice truck. They didn't have ice cream trucks in Hawaii. They had shave ice trucks waiting for the shave ice truck and then once in a while going swimming in donovan's pool but one time i remember just wandering into the house probably because i was going to get a soda or something and there was donovan's mom and she was watching world-class championship wrestling because she had the hots for the von erics (laughs) and so that was so she was like sit down i don't want to watch this alone it's weird if i watch it alone and so that was the first wrestling i saw and they would have commercials for polynesian wrestling which was the nwa affiliate in hawaii and so we started started going to shows and one of the first shows i went to and again this was like this was my first shocking live memory of wrestling so imagine this just sitting there in like an auditorium and it's quiet, and then some jobbers in the ring, and then all of a sudden, um, immigrant song from <laughs> immigrant song starts playing from Led Zeppelin. So it's like, Aah! and we're like, okay, what's this? Bruiser Brody comes out, swinging a chain. Oh wow! The crowd, and the crowd is about one fourth Japanese because um, the NW, the Polynesian wrestling, kind of had a deal worked out with New Japan. So sometimes, so sometimes, like a lot of Japanese tourists would come to the shows, and Bruiser oh. Brody's just mowing them over. I mean, he doesn't even stop because he knows this thing is probably being taped and is going to be shown in Japan. So he's got to keep the gimmick going. So he just mows over all these people. Hurricane goes to the ring. He got the. Ch- wraps the chain around his fist, punches the referee, punches this dude, gets DQ'd, leaves in a different direction than he came out, leveling another section of chairs. And then he's back in the locker room. And I just remember going like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what I consciously thought, but I remember the feeling being that was the greatest thing that I had ever seen. And it was probably that at that moment where I was sort of put on this path that I was going to do wrestling. Now, um, I, we would go to the Polynesian shows, and when I was 17 years old, a friend of mine and I, we went to the show, and then after the show was done, we got into the ring, which is just blasphemy, but we didn't think anything of it. Sure. And he and I would backyard, I mean, we didn't call it backyard wrestling, we called it screwing around in his pool. Mm-hmm. Um, but, so when we hit the ring, it was like, oh my gosh, wrestling ring, it's so exciting. And he threw me to the corner, and I flare flipped over the corner. 
just because I was, you know, 17, athletic young dude. I flipped, flare flipped in the corner, landed on my feet on the apron and ran, and then my friend came and clotheslined me. And I took, so my first bump I ever officially took at a wrestling ring was on the apron, like a moron. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, boom, so I hit the apron, and I was dazed and all that, but I bounced off and I did a great thing. And the guy who was, it, one of the people in charge at Polynesian Wrestling was Lars Anderson. And he came up to me and I thought, like, looking back, I'm surprised he didn't kill me. Um, right. But instead he just came up and he was like, hey, if you want to train, and he gave me the address of where to start training, but my mom wouldn't let me. So I didn't, I never pursued it until years later when I kind of wanted to train. I uh, I went to Japan as an excuse to train. Now, who were the guys in, in Hawaii? He, get this, get this level of talent. So you had Lars Anderson was like one of their big baby faces, um, but they had Rocky Johnson, and then they paired him with his quote unquote brother Ricky Johnson. <laughs> um, they had Kevin Sullivan was the big heel with woman. Oh wow! And in fact, when I met Chris Benoit, Chris Benoit asked to meet me, like in early two thousands, obviously, um, because I used to write this sort of fan fiction series called Rancor which mm-hmm. was supposed to be about wrestling 15 years in the future um, and what I thought it would look like in the year 2000 and like whatever. Oh my gosh, we're probably coming up on that. Right, year, right. Um, and Chris Benoit was the big grizzled hero in it who uh, actually kills himself <laughs> in, oh gosh. as a way to protest uh, the WWE being able to blackmail him. For something he had done. So that was one of the famous shots in Rancor. And like that cult group that used to read that um, always brings that up. Like whenever people email me, they go like, man, that's so creepy that Chris Benoit killed himself in Rancor and then, you know, did all that. But anyway, like when Chris Benoit was doing this autograph signing at an auto show, asked to meet me. So I got to skip the line and I had like, you know, printed up copies of it for him. And he was just talking about, he's like, He's like, I love this series. He's like, the boys, like, we're, we're not supposed to read it because it's, it's a lot of like bashing of the sort of modern product. Sure, sure. Um, and he goes, but the boys love it. And he's like, who's the kayfabe killer? Cause that was the big storyline going on in Rancor was all these old wrestlers were being shot and killed by somebody the press had dubbed the kayfabe killer. And he wanted to know who it was. Wow. Did you tell him? I did because, and it turns out that that series never, I, I, my, my vision was that it was going to go 30 episodes, but, um, the, I used to write for, for lethalwrestling.com and the webmaster guy got mad at me because I made fun of him. Nobody ever made fun of him, but on the forum, like we went, we jabbed back and forth and nope, nobody's going to one up me in any kind of insult contest. Right. So I went over on him. So he kicked me off the site on like episode like 22, but I had it planned and it was going to be a big conspiracy amongst all the very religious wrestlers wrestlers that they were doing it to try to clean wrestling up so it's going to be aj styles and like ted dibiase and all these characters that were in but you didn't really associate them together but it was going to turns out it was a giant like religious conspiracy oh wow kill off all the people they considered blasphemers right right the ones that were dirtying it up huh mm-hmm. wow so that was yeah so i got to meet benoit and after i met him 
and he's like, oh, I got to do this autograph thing. I'm like, oh, that's cool. He's like, why don't you just hang out for a bit and I'll try to talk to you during a break. And so woman was there. And so, you know, I approached her and I said, I just wanted you to know that like I lived in Hawaii when you were having your run there and we just thought you were, you just walked on water and I think you're really great. And I think she's not used to people actually approaching her that way. So we actually had a cool little conversation and I actually got to have dinner with Chris Benoit and Nancy and Dan. <laughs> oh wow! When that whole thing went down, uh, when Benoit snapped, um, that was actually during the run of the last season of Brawl, um, which was the pro wrestling themed improv show we did at Dad's Garage. And I remember it was like this really delicate thing of Dad's Garage didn't know how to handle it because the mm-hmm. Benoit thing was so big, and here we were doing a pro wrestling show, making fun of pro wrestling. Yeah, what do we do? And so I addressed, I like addressed the audience before the show, like I would at a PCW show and telling them like, you know, everybody knows what happened with Chris Benoit, but Nancy Benoit was also in the business. So we're going to, we're going to do a 10 bell salute for her. And then, um, yeah. So that, that, I mean, what a crazy time that was, that was also right before we started up PCW again. Well, and it's, it's amazing what one man can do because what that what happened what Benoit did the effect on the industry is still there it is it's absolutely there and I, I mean I think that sometimes people I think people are often wait on the WWE about any number of things and I don't think people realize how how close wrestling was and being damaged in a really permanent significant way but the WWE got ahead of that curve now we can have a debate on whether they they did they acted appropriately or whether they hid information or you know doing that Monday night tribute to Benoit when they had a strong suspicion that right what really happened you know we can talk about all the ethics of that but Nonetheless, I think the fact that the damage was so mitigated um, is a testament to sort of the power of the WWE and the intelligence of them as well. Because yeah. if it happened, if something like that had happened in the territory days, it would have wrecked wrestling. It would have given it a severe limp for a long time, kind of like when guys would do exposés in the newspaper in like the 30s and 40s um, about wrestling, like when motor would get mad and then expose the business um there's a book out that's out right now called like the squared circle that is the best book i have ever read on pro wrestling it is oh wow fantastic and it takes history of pro wrestling from like the carnival days with like newspaper excerpts on how they did the hustle in like the early 1900s like oh that's beautiful i I would love to check that out because one of my favorite uh, movies I've seen about wrestling is the the A and E documentary mm-hmm. that uh, Steve Allen yeah. narrated, I believe, yeah. and I can't remember what it's called right now. Real history of pro wrestling. Yes, that's right. I would. I, I wanted that as a miniseries, man. I wanted that as like one of those PBS style. You know, epic miniseries. Yes, I'm get get you know get Ken Burns on the thing, and it'll right. be. <laughs> right. 17 episodes of three hours <laughs> each and all these black and white photos even when they're not necessary it'll be great right. yeah i would love that so squared circle is the book squared circle yeah is it recent yes it's pretty recent okay i'll definitely have to check that out so 
coming up in Hawaii, but you, you said that Japan is where you trained. Now, you ended up in Japan because your dad was a Marine moving around. How did you end up deciding to, to train there? This is how dumb I am. So I was writing for a, uh, I was writing freelance for a number of different magazines, like Details and Maxim, like wherever I could, I got in where I could fit in. And one of the few magazines that I would give me consist, consistent gigs were wrestling magazines. Or I came up with a series of articles for other magazines, um, called the Deliverance Tour. Where I would, I would go to scary places, like I went to the place where they filmed Deliverance. Or I would go hang out with the blue people of Kentucky. Okay. No, I don't know if you know what that is. I've, I've heard it, uh, matter of fact, I think somebody recently, like biography or somebody recently did a special about that. I didn't watch it, but the term I know. Yes, because it's, it's, it's this, um, place in Kentucky where Basically, they're all inbred, and so they keep passing on the same con- congenitive disorders. So they're all deaf, and they use their own form of sign language, and they all and their skin has this sort of tint of blue because their blood doesn't oxygenate properly. And they keep passing these traits on because they keep having sex with each other. So they right. the blue people of Kentucky. So I, I hung out with all these sort of like fringe groups, and I realized like, oh, that's a great. You know, like magazines love that and I get more work. So then I thought, what else could I do? And I'm like, I'll be the guy that does like the weird, dangerous thing. So I took mm-hmm. a defensive driving class for like, um, bodyguards where you got to roll the car and I just all, I did these things where it's like, oh, we'll drop him off. And again, how far ahead of the curve? Because that's what reality television is now, right? Yeah, that's all it is now. And it's like, and so they, or, you know, these like weird things that rich people would pay for where they drop you off in the middle of the desert with a map and like all this kind of stuff and so one of them was like oh what if i what if i trained in pro wrestling and they're like oh that would be a great article and then you know maybe i could sell it to more than one magazine and so i'm like where should i train i go someplace interesting and exotic i go japan japan has wrestling <laughs> and uh, what's dumb about that is the japanese training is they they treat it like it's real and they're mm. going to get you to quit and the how they do that is they basically beat you up until you quit um but i didn't quit i um i got through the training there was 20 of us and two of us made it through and this isn't me bragging about myself much um but <laughs> I only made it to the end for two reasons. One, because the other guy, whose name is Kenji, who died in the last couple of years, but he was just a great guy, he bribed me to stay. Um, we were on a, like this ridiculous death march hike, and he goes, please don't quit. And I was like, I gotta quit. They're not teaching us how to wrestle. There's nobody else here. It's miserable. We eat the same thing every day, which was like this stuff that they use to bulk up sumo wrestlers. Mm-hmm. So it's just basically this giant vegetable broth with just like whole vegetables in it and whatever meat they could get a hold of, they would throw in. It was just awful. And I was sick of eating it. And he busted out McDonald's. He had McDonald's in a Ziploc bag. <laughs> and he said, and I'm like, how did you get that? And he's just like, don't worry about it. Just every day you stay, I guarantee you'll get McDonald's. And I'm not even that big of a McDonald's guy, but it, I mean, it just looked like heaven. So compared to the broth and I couldn't afford to change my plane ticket. That was the other reason I stayed. (laughs) I might as well make out the training. And then soon thereafter, they actually started teaching us how to wrestle instead of just beating us up. So I stuck it out and, but I still hadn't wrestled 
yet, really. I did like young boy stuff in Japan, um, where I'd be one of those guys in the, in the terrible jacket at ringside helping out and getting run over by the big, big names. And then, um, the way the Japanese wrestling worked is they would have a card like that was three hours long, but actually they, the young boys would wrestle before that, like in what would be called, I guess now a dark match, but, but there'd be like two hours of it. And only the hardcore fans would show up. They would make a day of it. They'd sit there with their like bento lunches eating while you were wrestling, knowing that your matches were going to be terrible because they would only let you do basic routines that you learned. Right. So, you know, like, you know, headlock, shoulder tackle, drop down, leapfrog, hip toss. Like, <laughs> that sounds like it was almost like a karate class or something where you learn, you know, you, you do your set of moves and that's it. Yes. And you, I mean, you were under strict instructions to basically do nothing that would get you over because they didn't want to take away from the real card. Sure. Um, so I did my stint in Japan and I would go back once in a while, but it's really, I didn't start wrestling actively, actively until like the mid nineties. Um, and then I just sort of caught on and then there was one group in particular in Colorado um, that started letting me book and that's when things changed for me when I started thinking about wrestling in a different way and I did a I did a I booked a show where Roddy Piper was going to do his first non WCW appearance so it was a big deal that we got him and so we had about 1,500 people to come see this indie show because Piper was going to be there. And two things happened. One thing that happened was when the show was done, I didn't get paid for this, mind you. So we drew 1,500 people charging um, minimum 20 bucks a ticket, but other tickets were up to $35. So the promoter made a mint. Sure, sure. Paid nobody. Even got Piper for sort of a cut rate. And I'll, I, and so, you know, he told it, he'd sort of claimed poverty. It, I mean, in a way, it was a great education. So typically wrestling, you know, <laughs> poverty, but they had me go get the money from the box office. So here I am, man, with these like stacks of money, like twenties, hundreds, just stacks of money. I can hold, barely hold them in my hand. And I hand him the money and a $5 bill, I'll never forget this, fluttered from the pile of money and hit the ground. And he's like, well, if you've got a problem with what you got paid, you can just have that. And he walked off. Wow. It's kind of like, huh? Because my pay was that he had gotten me a hotel room at the Double Tree where Piper was staying. But I'm sure he had like a block of hotel rooms and mine was free, but whatever. Yeah. Anyway, Piper asked, he left a message in my room saying, um, can you, you want to have lunch or you want to have breakfast with me and Leo Giobraldi, who he considered his mentor, who's an old wrestling guy, who's now dead. He died last year. And so, of course, I mean, oh my gosh, right? I get to have breakfast with Piper. And first thing out of Piper's mouth is he just goes, what are you doing in Colorado? <laughs> and I went, um, I don't, this is kind of home base. I've wrestled in other places, but, and he just shakes his head and he goes like, you're too small to, you're too smart to fall down for a living. Oh, wow. That's good to hear for, cause Piper is, he's one of those minds that I, I respect a lot. Like I, I love watching him in the ring, but I think he's got an amazing mind as well. Especially then, because that's a little before he started losing it slowly. You know, I mean, that he was still very lucid and and all that stuff. And so, 
you know, he, Jake Roberts, and Ric Flair were my three idols. Mm. The fact that, like, I'd gotten to, like, wrestle Jake and ride around with him and co- go to his house. Like, how weird is that, that, like, I used to go to his house, the one that's in Beyond the Mat, where he's, like, breaking rocks and stuff with his dad, Grizzly Smith. Like, yeah. that house. I mean, I... I I got to have a pretty great career. Um, you know, it's weird. It's because I'm coming up on my last match in the ring. But, I, I mean, I never thought of my in-ring career as much. But I look back and I go, like, I got to have experiences that guys nowadays don't get to have. Like, I got to make a living wrestling without wrestling for one of the big times. And I don't – that just doesn't exist anymore. It's just not possible. Yeah, you kind of came in – Probably right at the of the tail end of when that was really possible. Yes, absolutely. So I get to have experiences. So part of like when I would train guys is I just love wrestling. I love it. And so I would always make it a point to go on. Like when Pandora started getting booked in other states, I would go with her because I just wanted them to have that experience of the road trip with me. Right. And have a little bit, you know, just the hijinks, like wrestling nowadays is i think it's so many ways it's a hundred times better like you know like i'm friends with austin slash xavier woods right and and he's like the prototype to me of the modern wrestler he's not a drug addict he's a decent human being and he's he's more geek than than out of control jock we hang out with him every year at dragon con at the wrestling uh, he, he can't wrestle anymore, obviously, but he comes and sits with us every year now because one year, uh, it was the last year that he wrestled. We all ended up talking because we, we have a big crew that sits in the front row at Dragon Con Wrestling every year. Matter of fact, we have our own section now, uh, that they, they held for us last year. Hooligans, man. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, uh, he, he comes and sits with us and that guy is there. For Dragon Con, like he's happy that there's wrestling there to watch, but he'd be there if there was no wrestling. Absolutely, and you know he's now, of course he's in Orlando now, mm-hmm. so it's 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 fun because he'll be at the house and stuff. But I mean, he like I just I look at him and I go like that's that's what wrestlers are anymore. The days of being you know Ray the Crippler Stevens and like getting drunk on Jack while you drive a car 95 miles per hour in the snow, and um, like that stuff is done. And there's things that are good about that, but there's things that are bad. And I think the thing that's bad is wrestlers nowadays, and I mean, you can just read Facebook and read this. They think they know everything and they don't know anything because in my day, I'm that guy now, (laughs) I got to ride in a car with somebody who would, we would talk wrestling and we would practice promos and all this stuff that the guys nowadays just don't do. And you know, I, I've been cutting this series of promos to build up this match with me and Shane Marks. And people in the wrestling business call me up and they're like, they're amazing. And to me, they're not amazing. It's just, yeah, but that's because people don't cut promos like that anymore. You know, right. you're lucky if you can get a good minute out of somebody. So for me, cutting a 10-minute promo, it's nothing. It really isn't because I, I used to be in a car talking for hours trying to get stuff right trying to find my voice trying to trying to figure out what's the best way to say this trying to incorporate what i thought was cool in the world around me in pop culture and in the news and all this stuff that people have no interest in um and i think that that's a tragedy because jake roberts you know he was 
sparing with the advice, but when he would tell you something, it mattered. And the same went with Piper and anybody else that I listened to is when they gave advice, boy, it was great advice, but it was advice that you had to put into practice. Right. And I, and I just get the feeling that nowadays wrestlers are less inclined to put things into practice because it's just, they either don't have the time or they just don't have the inclination because this is, this is going to sound brutal. I can't think of a guy that can cut a promo as good as I can. It's interesting that you bring that up because working, uh, MCW at Six Flags, it was a very different experience from the regular MCW shows. Uh, it felt uh, a little more legit. Right. Just because of who we had working there and the atmosphere of it. And we were often, we often needed to use up more time. And I would tell the guys, cause I was out there the whole show talking and, you know, hyping up matches, doing what I do. But I would talk to the boys before the matches and I'd be like, look, if you want to talk, get on the mic and talk and take up some time. You can take up as much time as you want. This thing can go an hour. So this is a good opportunity. If you feel like just talking some smack for a while, do it. And very a very tiny percentage of the guys that work the shows took the opportunity to do that. Yeah. And, and, and even after you saying, you know, go out there, say whatever you want to say. You couldn't get the mic out of my hand when I worked. Yeah. Because I knew that's where, like, that's where the bread was buttered. I mean, talking people into the building, that's, I mean, I think, I, I teach my guys a promo that's short for promotion. It promo doesn't mean talking on a microphone or saying something. That's why I think when wrestling people use, modern wrestling people use, oh, do you hear that promo that so and so cut on that TV show? It's like, that's not a promo. Because a promo is about talking people into the building and making money. And, uh, I mean, do you remember, like, the early MCW stuff? I mean, the early, early, like, when P, like when MCW was the side act at um, Atlanta Apocalypse. I, I thought it was cool that you were there because you got to see sort of the the remnants of my generation where not only did I have to, like, talk for to buy time, which is not only did we, you and I both have to huckster to yeah. get people to watch and pay attention to the matches. Um, I actually had to have like a semi shoot fight in the middle of all of it. Yes, that was amazing. And, and I mean, it's one of those stories that I'm like, I'm going to get to have that story the rest of my life. And because I was prepared because that's, that's, that's what happened when I wrestled is like sometimes I don't think I'm the greatest uh, at any number of things, but I think one thing that I can clearly like two things I'm very proud of. One, I never had a major injury for as many matches as I did, as much crazy stuff as I did falling off balconies through tables and doing barbed wire. Like I never had a major injury, um, which I still think, I mean, that's a combination of luck um, and the way that I sort of trained myself. And the other claim to fame is I don't know if there's anybody ever better at wrestling people that did not know how to pro wrestle than me. Um, whether it was improvisers at Brawl or impromptu stuff we'd have to do to buy time at events. Um, you know, like I used to open, I opened for Ron Jeremy once. Um, Ron Jeremy did this like touring comedy show thing. Okay. A friend of mine or actually a coworker, he was the other wrestling commentator, Ryan Andrews, who now works for 
WWE doing production stuff for NXT. Um, he opened for Ron Jeremy once, but then Ron Jeremy found out that all of Ryan's jokes were actually mine. Um, so he had me do it another time and it was a great experience, but we had to buy time because Ron was late as always. So me and the wrestlers just came up with an impromptu thing where we sort of fought each other and then told jokes and all this other stuff. And I just think nowadays, like, the guys just, it, 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 and it's, this isn't a knock on modern wrestling as much, much as it is a, a call to the guys, like, become good at the stuff that you're not good at. It's not just about emphasizing your strength. It's about, you know, you got to get good at stuff. And the problem is there's too many guys around to tell them the, how good they are. Instead of the attitude was more in my day of, you know, you could think about doing this and you could think about doing that as opposed to good show, guys, good show, high five, high five, which yeah. is just kind of the attitude now. And, you know, again, there's great stuff about it. I think it's great that guys are, are more clean living and all that kind of stuff for obvious reasons. But there's, I don't know, there's wrestling's always been a little dirty. And it's what I like about it. I like that it's fringe. And I like that it's got its own sort of like social mores and things like that. Um, yeah, it's very... That never goes away, actually. It, it's interesting to to think about that because that, you, I mean, you gave me my start working in that MCW show and standing in that ring with no mic, no PA, mm-hmm. uh, no plan, really. And having to improvise the whole night and, like you said, fill time between matches and come up with names for the Washington Bullets painted up like voodoo guys. <laughs> and, you know, I, it, it was probably the best first experience I could have possibly had because I think it's prepared me for everything that I've done since then. Not that I have a long list of credentials or anything, but... Right. It it really was. I mean, I, it was getting thrown in there and and having to think quickly and and be entertaining at the same time. I, I think you know one of the great things about PCW, and it's so nice that like the PCW guys are now everywhere. Everybody uses them. Yeah, and they should because though maybe they don't have the years of some other like guys, especially outside of the perimeter, these like twenty year veterans or whatever. But those PCW guys, when we were doing two shows a week we're doing shows every tuesday at the jungle every friday at academy theater then you threw in the masquerade shows and then we stopped doing the jungle shows but then we picked up the porterdale shows and and in between we had all these weird gigs like mcw would come up or we'd have some like promotional thing at some expo well you guys did the improv shows too right right and so, I mean, my goal was, and you know, this is like counterintuitive to the business aspect. My goal was just to do as many shows as possible because the guys needed the reps and they needed, they needed to encounter. I would just throw all kinds of booking stuff at them. Like one of the mo- things I'm most proud of at PCW shows is if you came to those Friday shows, which you did, um, you came to those Friday shows, you saw a great show. Yes. And it- matter if it was 10 people i didn't care it was just like and i was gonna throw everything in the kitchen sink we had we would have full locker rooms of like 35 guys guess what we're gonna use all of you and i'm gonna teach you you guys are gonna have to do a brawl pull apart brawl with 20 of you in this limited space and the guys would just like 
but, but, but. And I'm like, no, this is the best education you can get is to do it. Like writers write, you know what I mean? And yeah. you're supposed to get out there and, and encounter all this stuff instead of just thinking you'll be able to handle it because you're going to find out all kinds of stuff about yourself, how you handle pressure and then get comfortable enough um, that you can handle literally anything that comes your way, which is part of PCW's thing was like, why are you bringing in Davey Richards? It doesn't sell tickets. It's like, because I wanted my guys to know that they could hang with anybody that it like, that's, that was part of it is, you know, it's like that scene in Full Metal Jacket where it's like, <laughs> you know, they're showing all the guys like running in the training ah, and he goes like, we were growing out of his control, but he liked it because we were, they were making Marines, not robots. Right. And that's how I think pro wrestling, they should be out of your control. And I think that's what's inherently kind of disconcerting about the modern like WWE developmental system is – it's the cookie cutter thing, but I think it's because they're not letting the guys get out of their control at all. Yeah, which I mean, again, is is an aftershock from Benoit. Yes, I, I you know what I didn't even think about that, but you're absolutely right. I think it's they want to control every aspect. Unfortunately, that's where the magic lives. That's yeah. where that's where Austin 316 comes from. Is the guys get ideas and then they just spit them out, or you try stuff and it doesn't work. That's all part of art, pop culture, writing, anything worth doing is is about. I mean, it's a cliche, but it's true. It's about failure. Um, you look at those old. I can't wait for WWE Network because I want people to get thrown in some cold water thrown on them because they're going to watch those ECW shows and you know what they're going to realize? Most of it sucked bad. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was terrible. And but but you know you don't remember that stuff because all that, they put on the compilations is the huge stuff like mm-hmm. Tommy Dreamer getting or. Uh, yeah, Dreamer getting crucified and the like all they ever show is the great stuff. They don't yeah. want to show the crap and there was plenty of crap. Yeah. And that's I mean that's part of anything and um you know, I I don't know what my quote unquote legacy in wrestling will end up being, but um I think the fact that I care about the stuff, I think about the stuff and I demand more alienates people left and right you know it i know it i mean you've been yelled at by me and like like <laughs> people don't like it but that's throwback that's you know? how you learn though it's that is and i mean it doesn't have to be that way but at the same time it's kind of cool when it's delivered that way because because i mean the pcw guys whoever you consider them to be can walk around with a chip on their shoulder and i gotta say they're pretty savvy. Pandora, nobody is smarter at working all these promoters outside of PCW than Pandora. She knows how to get her way. She knows how to get paid more than everybody. (laughs) She knows she turns face and then lets the girls lay her out because she knows that means they're going to have to keep bringing in those smothers girls. She's smart. I could tell you that right now because the first time I ever met Pandora was it was after I think it was Sacred Ground 2 when everybody went to the bar afterwards and you know we were just going there to hang out and say hi to everybody we knew I think we knew Chip at that point and that was about it 
And I went up to Pandora and Aisha, and I told them that was a hell of a match. That was absolutely amazing. You guys are outstanding. I've, I've enjoyed everything you've done, just beating the shit out of each other. And she said, you're going to buy me a drink, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, you know, when, like, Mae Young just died, and and I always consider Mae Young the second best ever. Um, my favorite is Killem Gillum for that name alone. <laughs> but... But Pandora, to me, is somebody who harkens back to that era of women's wrestling more than almost anybody else I can think of. From the conning, the hustling, just sheer toughness, and all the rest of it. And I'm glad that that exists. And I think on the guy's end, like, watching the Washington Bullets, they were here in Florida wrestling for FIP. And so they stayed with me and um, I would go to the shows and all that stuff. But the thing I was most impressed with is not just the wrestling in the ring. And, of course, the bullets just get better and better and better. God, you're but not kidding. was watching them work the room afterwards where they had a battle plan. Make sure we say goodbye to everybody. Uh, Steve said that this guy's a promoter of this and this guy's a promoter over here. Because I work a room too, I can't help it. It's mm-hmm. just who I am. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, "John, you need to talk to this guy and get his name and number." You, I'll go talk to this guy. And I mean, I was like, "That's why they're they've got a shot." And and it's the art of all of the carny stuff, whatever you want to call it. That that's an integral part of the pro wrestling business. That I think most guys are just going to miss out on that experience or deny themselves that experience. I mean, beyond wrestling is great, but to get in a car and drive fourteen hours to not get paid so you can wrestle one of the boys in a thing, basically to impress the other boys. It has limited value. It is not the same experience that somebody had 30 years ago. That's mm-hmm. not, it, it's, it's trying to replicate that experience, but it's not the same. Cause it's, it's, it's not the same traveling in a car with a guy who's at your level and your age and your intellect. Right, right. So it's, it's much better to, I mean, did I, was I happy? Somebody asked me today, it's like, have you ever smoked weed? No. You know why? Because I was always the young guy that had to drive. Right. That, that's why I never did anything bad because I had to be the sober one. But the guys that I drove, you know, I mean, I, I, you can't replicate that experience. Um, even when we started doing Brawl, I was the one who picked Aaron Sheik up and I was in the car with him. Was it harrowing? Sure. Was it weird that I had to go take him to buy crack? Absolutely. But, you know, getting to talk to him and, and talk about Billy Robinson with a guy who was trained by Billy Robinson, who hates Billy Robinson, it's awesome. Yeah. You know? And those are the experiences that I think I hope won't be lost. And and it's one of those things that I just insist on keeping with PCW, even though I don't do the training anymore because I'm not there. But when I'm in town, I'm going to run a practice on Thursday. And anybody who's smart would show up. Right. Not just for the physical part of it, but for the part where I wind down and I just start talking. Um, because that's how you learn. Um, cause I watch a bunch of guys who I think are really good and they're in my mind, they're all plateauing. Um, and I don't think that they know it. Um, but in, in when I was wrestling, when I plateaued, there was somebody there who let me know. It's just like, man, you better, br- you gotta bring it. Cause right now you're just coasting. And see, that's uh, an important thing to have because I, I think on your own, you can get 
to a certain level. And that's, that's kind of uh, talking earlier about my plans for this year. Like I know what I want for this year and I've had thoughts of, okay, well, if I get this stuff done, I'm going to be in a good spot. And I don't really have a person to say, no, what are you talking about? You can do more with this. There's there, you know, you can, yeah, sure. You've, you've done these panels at dragon con, but why aren't you working other cons? Why aren't you, you know what I mean? Like there, you don't have that, that it's cheerleader. Well, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm free with the advice cause I'm just a self-important asshole. <laughs> So there's a, a, a kind of a friend of a friend who does this online comic, and, and and the name of it is like the name of the website is so awful to me because it's it's sort of self-deprecating and diminishing. Mm-hmm. And so I said, you know, you should think about changing that. And he had all these defenses. No, I'm not being self-deprecating. It's just it's what it's been for years. And I just went like, if I'm like, you say you've been doing it for years, you're not getting paid to do it. What are your ambitions for this thing? Because if you want to take it anywhere, that name isn't going to work. If you name your band Alien Ant Farm, you're going to have one hit, and that's it. You have to think, I mean, again, I think it's one of those things, Platinum Championship Wrestling. That, it has such a classic timeless ring to it um, that it feels big. And again, it's the thing that like wrestlers don't understand. Like when you look at what they name themselves, these bland, terrible names. Everything doesn't have to be gimmick to the nines, but at the same time, the, you have to g- have a name that gives you the potential to be great. And I, I don't know how much striving for greatness there is in general. I think we've grown to hate greatness in pop culture, sports, and every other aspect of entertainment. Yeah. We hate greatness. That's why when, when greatness has got grandfathered in, it becomes bulletproof because it's like, it's like Meryl Streep. She could do anything and she can't do any wrong. But is there going to be another Meryl Streep? I don't know because we're too busy tearing down anybody who looks like they might get there. Yeah. The in, envy is a, is a horrible thing. And, and it is to the point where it, it, it's almost like that awful urban mentality of, uh, oh, you're, you know, you're going to school, you're bettering yourself. What's wrong with you? Crabs you in know, a bucket. That, that, yeah. That, that cliche of all the nineties, um, like menace to society and all that stuff. That cliche has become kind of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, Great. And, for I think even when you look at like pop culture, um, you know, Doctor Who is this great thing. And I'm not the biggest Doctor Who person, but I, but I watched everything that I could almost out of obligation mm-hmm. and then taught myself to really love it. But I, I noticed there's always this sort of fringe thing where every Doctor Who thing that comes out is critiqued to death instead of people sort of marveling at the accomplishment of Sucks. It's like, are you hearing me now? Yeah, yeah, you're good. But yeah, it's just like, um, and I think that's part of it too. Is um, with wrestling, my experience is, and and you know, I'm I'm sort of I'm 
kind of one of wrestling, at least Georgia wrestling's like sort of more prominent critics. Mm-hmm. I think full disclosure column, probably there's more buttholes puckered when they see there's a new one than for anything else. Where it's just like, oh man, where's he going to go? You know, it's I, like, I would believe that because I've read that and, and there have been times, even though I have nothing to do with the, the promotions that you talk about for the most part, there have been times where I have cringed, like, ooh, I'm glad I'm not that guy. <laughs> but, you know, ultimately it just comes down to um, the demands that I have are are actually less than the demands I have for myself and PCW. Mm-hmm. Um, I And being content is has never been a good place um, in art in any way, shape or form. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's like, that's the other hand is I, I want like whatever art I'm watching to like, that's my issue with Dexter to get back to Dexter is it was great. And then if it was a thing where they, they, they were really experimenting and trying stuff and it just wasn't working. That's one thing. Um, but sometimes it felt like they were just coasting on, here's a bunch of characters that you love. So now we're just going to keep putting them, putting them in scenarios. It felt to me like they were doing well and they had a certain end in mind, but because they were doing well, they kept going, but they didn't really have the material to sustain the final two seasons, I guess. Yeah. I I think they just ran out of inspiration. And that's the danger, I guess, with anything. Um, You know, but then you look at something like Breaking Bad and... You know, you just marvel at what an amazing character study that was. And, and you, it makes you happy. I think there's also something to say that, that they were smart enough to do five, six seasons and end it. Yeah. They, well, I think they had a definite arc in mind. There was probably a little wiggle room. You know, that, let's say he, he maybe had three seasons planned out. And then it was such a runaway success, he had left himself enough wiggle room for a couple more seasons, maybe. I mean, it's very obvious, though, that every single part of that show, every part of the story arc was planned and laid out in advance. Yes, and, and you know, to, to take it back to wrestling, PCW, I mean, like that Empire angle played out over a year and a half. Yeah. And then paid off at Sacred Ground 3, which was, it's still like, that's a, like, if I died tomorrow and my legacy was the wrestlers that I trained and Sacred Ground 3, I'm okay. I'm okay with that. Cause like Sacred Ground 3 was one of those few shows where I was happy with it when it was done. It's, and I, it's the biggest show I've ever seen. Whether it was live, whether it was recorded, wh- whatever. I've never seen so much heart and so much payoff in one show. Well, spoiler alert, because Sacred Ground 5, the, the, the Sacred Ground 5's payoff has been building up since before Sacred Ground 4. And I'm wrestling my last matches, uh, February 12th, we're going to be at Actors Express on that Wednesday night. Um, so it's me and the exotic ones against um, Shane Marks, Chip, and Siler. I will be at that show, and I will be wearing my Exotic Ones T-shirt. It's going to be ridiculous. I mean, just the just for the entrance that the Exotic Ones and I are going to do alone <laughs> is worth the price of admission. Um, and then my last match is on the fifteenth, and all I can say is, like, the focus is going to be on this is his last match against Shane Marks, but. 
my my concept is I just want to make sure the building's packed, which is why I'm doing that last match because the the arc is going to flip and then go into hyperdrive and when it happens people will be blown away as blown away or more so than when oh my god the empire won it's now empire that's ridiculous the people did not see that as that was going to happen no. or they certainly didn't see it in the way that it mapped out you know no that or- hit me man i i was i like to think of myself as a pretty clever guy who who can, you know, generally kind of see what's coming in television and, and in wrestling or whatever. You know, not always, but that blindsided me. I was, uh, I mean, and I love PCW, man. And right now I'm in the course of training five different people to run and book shows. So that way, if something was to happen to me, it keeps going. Um, but this the angle that we have that's go- going to really hit hyperdrive on the 15th that thing runs and the payoff happens at sacred ground 5 and recently i've 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 sort of mapped stuff out a little after that and um you know things may change along the way or whatever 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 but at the same time i'm really proud that you know i knew the main event of sacred ground 3 at sacred ground 2 that's and beautiful. the fact that we actually made that happen, and it executed the way. And I, I'm a, I don't I don't believe in luck, but I do believe like man, when when things are going the way they're supposed to go, um, other things seem to fall into place. And though I would have never wished it upon him, when Mason's head got split open at Sacred Ground Three by accident, mm-hmm. and it's gushing blood, it took something that was already amazing and made it forever. Yeah. Like. I, you know, I told him afterwards, I'm like, I'm so sorry that happened to you, but I can't lie. It, uh, you know, you will always be able to look back and say, I wrestled that match. I wrestled the best match ever for me. And I, you know, that's one thing that's funny about my career is if, if you said, what's the best match you've ever wrestled? I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it was when I wrestled Jay in like WWA4. And it's like, I, I'm hoping, and this is a lot to put on myself, but I'm really hoping that me and Shane Marks, like, that it's the best match that I ever wrestled. And so I've been, I've been literally getting up at three in the morning, every single morning, weekends, all of it, uh, to work out for two hours. Cause I just, I just not going to walk in there and embarrass myself. Sure. Uh, how I look or anything else. I mean, the adrenaline's going to be flowing and I'm probably going to be gassed and all that stuff, but at least I want to feel like I did everything that I could to be worthy of that match instead of just Shane Marks having to drag my carcass around until we get to the finish. Well, when you first told me it was going to be your final match, my my first thought was, what the fuck is he going to do? Oh, Because I- for you to say this is going to be my last match and for you to be the guy that that I have yet to see half ass anything <laughs> I I can't imagine I'll t- I I won't spoil it No no don't don't one thing is um I, the next promo I'm going to cut um which is actually already cut and I'll release in the next couple of days is me basically saying um 
Shane Marks has never been physically tested or put into physical peril. So I'm guaranteeing that I'm going to pile driver him through a table and I'm going to show clips of me doing it to other people. Um, so that's one thing. Oh, and, oh. and I'll tell you that that's not even the finish. That's like halfway through the match. Oh gosh. So, and then I, and then I had to have a sit down conversation with my wife about stuff that I wanted to do in that match. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's going to be like, just to give a little tease of like, Oh man, he felt the need. And keep in mind that I didn't even clear it with her when I like bladed at, at, um, the war games. <laughs> I came home and I had the bandage on my head and she's like, you bladed? And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so the fact that I, I, that, that wouldn't even occur to me to tell her, but I, I feel the need to sit her down and say like, I want to do this and I want to do that. And I'll try to guarantee as much as I can that it will be safe. Um, and she's like, okay. So. Well, and this is it, man. It's 42. So the, mm-hmm. it's, it's the glory is there. And, and you, you are physically and mentally peaked. Yes. And then I, which is funny cause I, I mean, my in career, ring career really was not much. I mean, I got to do everything that I wanted to do and I wrestled five to eight times a week for years. And, you know, if, if somebody had told me that that was ever going to happen, I wouldn't have believed it. But yeah, I'm really excited. And like the promos I'm cutting are just fun and just the thought of, it's just going to be a good time. Like that's, I think when I come back and when I'm in the locker rooms, I hope that that attitude is, is infectious. And I think Shane Mackey finally gets it. I think he's hitting his stride as a booker and think about how long that took because he took over right after sacred ground three. So it's taken him a year and three months to really be in the groove as a booker. Did he have any, any prior, experience with that though no yeah that's that's what i was thinking is he kind of went into that cold and so i mean i've got to think if he's telling good stories now that that's not a terrible curve at all no but who has the patience for that nowadays you know Uh, yeah that's a good point and and that's that's part of the thing too is um you know the bookers of tomorrow it's it's hard like even booking mcw has proven to be difficult for people because it's like yeah, when you're having to keep so many balls in the air, and most of the job is social. It's about being in contact with the wrestlers, having visions of your own, incorporating theirs, and then selling them on what you want them to do to make sure they're enthusiastic about it. Yeah. And that's, that's a tall order. It's a really tall order. But again, it's, it's just one of those things I think I was always meant to do, which is probably why I was, uh, when I played Dungeons and Dragons, I always ran the game. I, I never enjoyed playing as much as I did sort of, you know, making the worlds and making the characters and like making the char- the non-player characters and stuff like that. It was always much more what I was inclined to enjoy doing. So it's funny that like now I'm booking wrestling writing guy, though I still enjoy, you know, when I got to manage, um, Bordell Walker here in Florida, I had a ball because it's like, there was no pressure. I got to be this manager character that I had conceived of years ago, and I got to give it to myself for once, and it was just fun. I, 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 I fancied myself more of like a MMA corner guy mm-hmm. than a manager, so I would just kneel on the floor and yell instructions to Vordell, but in the same way that like MMA guys do. Yeah. So I would 
say like, look out, ref, and blah, blah, blah. I would just, I would yell, knees, knees, like when he would have the guy's head or, right. I'm like, get out of the corner, get out of the corner. Which if there's uh, anybody to be the guy to do that for, it's Vordell Walker. Sure. And I'm, I'm sorry that that never, like, I was actually his manager at the steel horsing show, the one where that guy called the cops. Oh no. I, I, that show, that very show, what a great show to work, you know. And then they wanted me, and they they do, they wouldn't let me cut a promo. They didn't didn't really know what to make of me. But after I did the thing with Vordell, they were like, "That was great. So sorry we didn't let you cut a promo. Can you do the next show?" And I couldn't because I was going to be in um, Atlanta. Yeah. So yeah. it just never caught on from there. But yeah, I mean, I st- I still love wrestling. I'm 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 geeked up about WWE Network. Just I'm I'm geeked up about having access to all that footage and getting to watch when I want when I, how I want. Yeah, and, no kidding. Oh, and I mean I, they are the they are the big windmill that I tilt against in one way I guess, but at the same time, I'm glad that it all exists somewhere, even if it's going to be with their spin on everything. It's like I'm glad it's there because otherwise, where would it be? It wouldn't exist. It wouldn't be in any kind of palpable form or inexpensive enough for you to actually get to consume it well and again for for people to you know people talk so critically of wwe but that's what you do about the big dog sure and how smart of them to go around and buy up all the tapes of all the territories to to stockpile all of that wonderful information i mean you know lots of other business they might have just buried that stuff well and and you know by that business model, like when Netflix upgrades itself, it has to pay for that privilege. Right. You know, they're having to pay to produce all these like great shows. Mm-hmm. Same with HBO and Showtime. They had to put up or shut up. They had to like spend big money to get boxing on there and they had to spend big money to have these shows produced in order that they could justify charging more for their product. WWE, they've already sunk all their money into this thing. Yeah. So uh, people keep worrying. It's like, oh, yeah, sure, it's $10 for six months, but then they're going to jack up the price. No, they need the – like they've already spent the capital. Now they have to make some money on this thing or it's going to be a colossal failure. And I really don't think they're going to allow this thing to be a failure. No, they're not. And uh, and the argument about the price is is that's just somebody who doesn't understand – how economy works because you'd rather have let's put it on a small scale you'd rather rather have a thousand people paying ten dollars a month than ten people paying sixty dollars a month and that's essentially what they've created yes especially for the kind of fan base that they have who spend money on wwe stuff almost on par with like nascar fans right. and what they spend on pro- their products wwe wants as many people as possible there to consume and they're gonna, you know, for them, it's no, it's like, oh, they're giving away the pay-per-views? That's ridiculous. It's like, not to them, because again, they're always, they've always been good at being one step ahead of what wrestling needs to do to make money. And, and the thing you think about is, you know, people talk about casual fans all the time, and whether you dismiss them or not, well, you're wrong if you dismiss them, because they have money too. This nets in those casual fans Absolutely. who would never pay $60 to see WrestleMania, but who will certainly pay $60 for six months of wrestling programming and WrestleMania. Right. Um, and, and I mean, imagine how great it's going to be for NXT. Oh, They're going to have an audience that they've never had before. Yeah. And so people who have heard about it, like, and NXT is great. We go to the tapings and have a ball it's just a just a well done show and it's full of hungry guys i mean it's it's everything i love about pcw where it's like 
they take chances with the booking. There's guys that are working a gimmick. If something doesn't work, they try it out for a while, and then they really try it out, and then they just abandon it. It's okay for stuff to fail. Right. Um, and I just, I love being in that sort of cauldron of creation. It's, it's, you know, the stuff I like in pop culture. I guess I'm just not, I'm an old dude, so it's just like, I'm just less harsh on stuff. Like, people are like, what kind of music you listen to? And people are like, well, but I don't listen to, no, I legitimately will give him almost anything a chance. Because it's like, I love that, you know, I love this gritty, terrible aspect. Auto-tune singing, it's just like, sure. I mean, will I enjoy that stuff as much as I'll enjoy like vintage Black Sabbath? Probably not, but it doesn't mean I'm, I'm I ignore it. And you know, having kids, as you know, like old, like the new stuff is totally with a fresh pair of eyes. Yeah. And so it's just like, okay, well, she really likes whatever. She really likes uh, Lord or Katy Perry. So it's like. I'm going to listen to it, I guess. And why be ignorant of stuff too? It's like, yeah. why not, why not know what's going on? You know, I had, I had one of my first genuinely shocking parental thoughts. I mean, I've had a few, <laughs> I've, I've had those moments where like my dad, my dad's voice comes out of my mouth and I'm like, Oh shit, what was that? Um, <laughs> But I had my first genuinely shocking parental thought about the new Spider-Man movie. Uh, I took my son to see Amazing Spider-Man, and we ended up leaving in the lizard scene because he was still... I think he had just oh. turned five, and the lizard scene got really intense down in the yeah, sewers. Yeah, it is. It was, sure was. And it freaked him out, and I was like, fine, we'll go. That's cool. No problem at all, because I'm not a guy who's like, you're going to do this, and you're going to, you know, it's, no, if you're not having a good time, let's get out of here. There's plenty of time in your life to, to do shit you don't want to do, you know? Mm. Um, and then once it came out, we watched it at home, and he loves it now. So the trailer for the second movie came out, and I was not thrilled with a lot of things about it. Right. And in my head, I was just like, ugh, I don't, every second that Jamie Foxx was on the screen was terrible. And I don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, just being a bitchy fanboy. Mm-hmm. And then I showed my son the trailer and he loved it. And this thought, this, this thing snapped in my head where it went, well, I really don't give a shit if I like it, if he likes it that much. And I was like, no, what? What was that? No, you have to be mad about the things they did to Spider-Man. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I genuinely don't care. If he digs it, then that's awesome. Good job. You made a movie my kid likes. Yeah, I, you know, I like, I'm such a snob when it comes to comics because I, I worked in a comic book store when I was a kid. And I, so for instance, like I, it was only Marvel, only Marvel. And, you know, and then I was very like, I rank and ordered titles. So I was considered <laughs> Avengers. Avengers was one of the ones I just didn't care about. I, I only cared about the Avengers if they were part of a bigger crossover thing, like a secret wars or something. Yeah. Other than that, I just didn't, I didn't really care for it. I was an X-Men guy. Yeah, I was, I was, you know, I love the thing and Doctor Doom, which is the only thing that kept me reading the boring Fantastic Four. I just love those <laughs> characters so much. But like, um, but Elena just decided she loved the Avengers. She loves them. She loves them. She loves them. Right. And so, you know, watch the movie 
And like you said, like there were some parts that were a little too much for her, but she stuck it through. And then, and I went, who's your favorite Avenger? And I desperately want her to say Captain America. Um, and she goes, Hulk. And she flexes and starts, I'm like, oh gosh, (laughs) Hulk. Uh, At least it's not Thor. Um, Uh, I had this big debate with a friend recently where I was trying to explain to him that Thor was just uh, Marvel's version of Captain Marvel, and uh, he he got really really angry. <laughs> so we actually had to stop the conversation. But but yeah, like it is fun like seeing what she likes, Elena, who's six, what she likes, what she digs. She's grown to love Captain America, so I got her a Captain America cape. Somebody was selling at this like weird art festival. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, so she's like, Captain America. So she she watched that movie uh, as much as she could understand it, mm-hmm. and you know it's like wow. And it's funny, it's because like I was never a Captain America guy, mm-hmm. but now I am. And somebody gave me the omnibus that included the death of Captain America, which oh. is brilliant, so brilliant, and. So now I've become a sort of a fan retrospectively because of that omnibus. That's how I get into things a lot is, is kind of, well, like with watching Dexter, you know, three years after it ended or, or whatever the case may be. Right. That I'm, I'm, I'm behind the curve a lot of the time on that kind of thing. Uh, before we go, I have a question. Yeah. The big question, the one that I've always wanted to ask you about, but it's not a big enough question for, for it to have really like come up. Where, how did you decide and you talked you touched on this earlier how did you decide on platinum when when did it happen and and how like when did it click as oh that's it uh, it's like all stories with me it's it's always um by accident and so um i was in i lived in kind of the denver colorado area i decided i was going to open a wrestling school in atlanta because WCW had folded up and I knew the power plant was going to be gone. And I thought, Oh, what a great time to open a wrestling school. So I had a friend who did graphics and logos and was really good at the computer. And I'm like, let's call it, um, I wanted to call it the original name was Phoenix. And I'm like, and I'm going to franchise, like I had all these big visions, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to have a wrestling school and then we're going to run a promotion out of the, from the students at the wrestling school only. And then I'll franchise it. It'll be great. And I'm like, so we'll call it the Phoenix wrestling Alliance. And also, cause it's rising from the ashes of WCW. Yeah, yeah. So Phoenix Wrestling Alliance and the Phoenix Wrestling Academy. So we can have the same logo, same letters. Yeah. I'm genius, right? Sure. And actually, and then- let me say real quick, just so the listeners are aware of this, this story, uh, is documented in the film, The Booker. Yes, The Booker, um, which I've watched again recently. And it is a lot of fun to see where the wrestlers went from there. But also, to, I think um, Mike Perkins, who filmed the documentary and did most of the editing, he really captured PCW at a moment where it was the right point of the energy was really high because we were creating, literally creating from nothing. Mm-hmm. And where I was also figuring it out, but I was also really knowledgeable at the same time so it's like i was figuring out all these little aspects of the wrestling business that i wasn't yet aware of but i was kind of beyond my years about other stuff so i was able to sort of lead 
from the front, but at the same time, like having to figure out how to deal with prom- like venue people and all the like screw you over part yeah, of the business yeah, yeah. that I never had to deal with before. Well, that's all the stuff about the jungle is fascinating. It's 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 a great story, and I, I definitely recommend it. Um, Especially because, like, my God, man, it's going to be Sacred Ground Five yeah. this year. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's still around, and Sacred Ground is now the thing. It's the only big show that we do by name, and like, it's still a thing. And it's like people, you know, wrestlers from around the country. This is such an honor and so cool. They like emailed me and goes like, "When Sacred Ground Five, and can I be in the Platinum Royal?" Like, wow! I think like. That's great. That's that's one of the key things about PCW, though, is is how conservatively you treat uh, certain types of specialness. There's one title and there's one big show, mm-hmm. and that really is is a way to make those things seem like they are truly the the top of the heap. You don't have ten titles running around. You don't have you know a, a, a you don't name a monthly show. I, I think that's an important thing. And it's funny because, and again, it's it's just about execution because everybody knows those things inherently and says them all the time and critiques the WWE, yet they can't stop themselves from doing yeah. it. You know, yeah. they can't stop themselves from having six titles. Um, but getting back to... Um, what's, to what Platinum. Talking about? Where, the, to plat- the genesis so of Platinum. So, so it's Phoenix, and he made all these logos that were like chrome, and they looked awesome for PWA. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and then somebody pointed out, probably my much younger than me girlfriend at the time goes, Steve Phoenix is the name of a major city. (laughs) Isn't that going to be confusing if you're calling it Phoenix, but you're in Georgia and not in Arizona? And I went, Oh my God, it is. You're right. Oh my God. I I was only dating her because she was young and really hot and now she or she is outsmarting me. So then I went, well, all the logos are done. I don't want to change the letters. What do I name it? And I really didn't know. I wrote down a million things that started with the letter P. Platinum wasn't one of them. Mm-hmm. But then um, I looked at Creative Loafing because we were running ads in Creative Loafing and on uh, radio in Atlanta way before I, I had gotten there. Um, so then I, I was looking through a creative loafing, which I had sent to me to make sure the ad looked right and all that stuff. And I was just, and you know, it was all this hip hop culture stuff in Atlanta, especially at that time. Um, and then it was just like platinum this and platinum that. And I went, Oh, that's awesome. I'm like, and look, the logo, cause it's got a chrome look. It kind of looks like platinum. We'll just be platinum wrestling alliance until I can think of something better. Mm-hmm. And then. And then when all that stuff folded up, when we were at the WWA four, and but we but the but we turned Thursday night practice into sort of a de facto show because I wanted the guys to get the experience of doing it, and then it started catching on. And first, it's just their friends coming to see it, and then people started coming to see the show because it was good. Um, then it's like, well, what do we we got to call it something? We can't call it WWA four, which is still the worst name for anything that I could imagine. <laughs> awful um so bad and so i'm like we've got to call it something and then it's like the platinum thing was cool and i wanted to give it an old school feel so i'm like platinum championship wrestling and i was like and i wanted letters that people could chant and you know it sounds like ecw so it's like pcw so it goes yeah. and scott warren actually dubbed me 
Stephen Platinum because we were doing that first season of Brawl and they didn't know what to call me. And so when we did the PCW versus um, Dad's Garage thing, that was sort of the big storyline of that year, the big angle of that year of Brawl, he was just like, I can't stand you, Stephen. And he knew my real name, so he's Stephen Platinum. <laughs> and I went, huh, that's a cool name. I love it. And so it just stuck. So it's like, and isn't that how a lot of great things just come about? It's just sort of through happenstance and having to improvise at the last moment. And, and I, I'm a big believer and this, I'll, I'll leave with this. It's like, I'm a big believer in boundaries. Um, I think too often people think art has to be limitless to be good. And I'm of the opposite mind. I think when you, when you realize your limitations and you have boundaries, you explore everything in those boundaries. It's when you don't give yourself limitations or restrictions. That's hard. It's like if you, it's like improvisers going out there on stage and just going like, okay, what should we do a scene about? They could be anything. Right. Right. But they're never like, I'm a grain of salt on a pretzel. They don't think of that. Mm. They don't think of like, where am I? I'm inside the human body and I'm an antibody. No. What do they end up doing scenes about? Relationships and the office. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. when 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 given anything to do, your mind immediately gets scared of that because that's literally the definition of sublime and awesome, right? It's just like, oh my god, it's too much. So then your your mind closes itself into the thing it knows the most. Whereas if you have boundaries, and pro wrestling, I think needs them. It's like, okay, it's a thing that has to continue, and it has to emotionally hook people in, and it's got to involve a good guy and a bad guy, and it's got to pay off in a match or at least one match. Then once you allow yourself to have those limitations, then you start exploring stuff. And I think that that's really what wrestling needs. Instead of worrying about, I love Daniel Bryan, he should be the champion. Instead of doing that, allow yourself to go on the ride. Yeah. And go like, he's over, and everybody knows he's over. Certainly there's going to be a payoff of this, which is going to hopefully be worthy of all this going on. Mm. And just go for the ride. And I hope the writers are like, how can we make this payoff even bigger? How can we make this thing even cooler? How can we make this thing launch three more stars besides just him? And that's the, you know? I, I sent a friend of mine because I, I wasn't able to watch the Rumble. I was at work. And I sent a friend of mine a message once I heard about uh, the the supposed misuse of Daniel Bryan. And, and I, the message was this. It was, Daniel Bryan wins the Royal Rumble. Everybody goes home happy and doesn't talk about wrestling again until Monday night. Batista wins the Royal Rumble, or or anybody that's not Daniel Bryan wins the Rumble. Mm-hmm. Everybody is furious and talks about WWE all over social media for the next week. Yeah, they got him talking. Daniel Bryan is is no less important than he was. Before the Royal Rumble pay-per-view. As a matter of fact, he had the best match on the card from what I understand. So if anything, he got a nice showcase and then comes out Monday night. Everybody still loves Daniel Bryan. Nobody, nobody and, thinks and, less of and him. The, and something is happening that hasn't happened in wrestling in eons. People believe that they have the power to influence the show. Yes. I mean, this is Bruno San Martino stuff. People cheered Bruno thinking they could will him to victory. Mm-hmm. 
and wrestling fans now believe they're they're not giving us what we want. We're going to make our voice heard. Duh. Right. <laughs> right. Ultimately, they make their voice heard with their money, yeah. and which they are more than willing to spend. I mean. They've gotten screwed over on Daniel Bryan wins the title. They've had to buy pay-per-view after pay-per-view <laughs> right. to, to see a payoff that's never happening. Right. That's called great business. Yes, exactly. And not that I, not that I think WWE is always in full control of its powers. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't give them that much credit, but I don't know. I, I, Daniel Bryan is as big a star as you could possibly be and he doesn't have the title. Yeah. That's a victory to me. Well, and that's, I mean, the, that's the thing is, is the title needs a great star a great star doesn't need the title yes absolutely correct well i want to thank you so much for coming on and talking about your your journey from dungeon master to wrestling booker mm-hmm. uh which which you know when you say it kind of makes sense you know that's a great sub line that's a great second line to a book my, i always think the book of my life will be called worst baby face ever <laughs> I think I break every rule as a baby face. Nothing <laughs> wrong with that, face. man. From, the, from Dungeon Master to Wrestling Booker. Not bad. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on, man. I appreciate thank it. Thank you, man. And I'll see you soon. Absolutely. That was awesome. I had such a good time talking to that dude. Uh, I, I definitely could have carried on for a couple more hours that was a great conversation remember steven platinum will be at the actors express this wednesday night february the 12th uh to set the stage for his official retirement match this saturday night the 15th live from porterdale georgia in the pcw arena I think there are people that don't like it when you call it the PCW Arena because it's not really an arena, but I don't care because I think that's awesome. Uh, seriously, though, Wednesday night, Saturday night, Stephen Platinum will be in PCW doing amazing stuff. Uh, I'm going to be there for both nights. Wednesday is going to be a little tough because I'm working a four-day stretch this week, and uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes, but I'm not going to miss this. And then Saturday night will be... Uh, PCW in Porterdale, Stephen Platinum's last match in the ring, and after that, uh, I've got Mr. Bo Brown's Puckin' Fuppet Show, which you need to check that out on check it out on Facebook and see where that is because I can't remember right now, but you can definitely find it on Mr. Bo Brown's page or on the Puckin' Puppet Show page. I've not been able to go to one of these before because of my stupid work schedule, but I'm off this Saturday, so I will be there. It's going to be a big night for me. Um, remember, iTunes, Stitcher, Needless Things Podcast. Check out NeedlessThingsSite.com. I am posting my Castle Grayskull review this week. That's right. The biggest review ever. I should put an echo effect on that, but I'm not gonna because it's late at night. I've got to work in the morning, and that's all I've got for you. I love you guys. Later. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network, your station for all things geek, classic, current, and beyond. Be part of the crew at esonetwork.com.